Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through the legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation. Beautiful, sunny, sunny, kind of into summer going into autumn day in Los Angeles. You know, I've been thinking a lot since I've met my guest today, and I'm not sure how many of us really stop to think about the, the trauma first responders go through on a daily basis. From police officers, firefighters, medical staff, crime scene investigators, so on and so on. People that literally are right there at the moment of something traumatic happening. And I became connected with my guest today on the Mental Health Radio News Network, which I'm so honored to be a part of, as I think I've talked about before. His passion is helping first responders get emotional help. He holds a Bachelor of Science at San Diego State in Criminal Justice Administration and is a certified alcohol and drug counselor. He has spent 19 years serving the public as a police officer and 10 years as an undercover narcotics detective. I'm so thrilled to be talking to him today. He knows what life and death look like and the toll it can take on a person's life. And he personally has experienced addiction and untreated mental health for many, many years until he had a turnaround, which we're also going to talk about today. After losing it all and going through recovery, today he specializes in counseling first responders and the development of peer support and recovery planning. With his goal of reaching out to first responders, he also started a podcast in 2018 named Positive Connections Radio. This podcast is designed to help break the stigma of mental health issues among first responders and to connect those that are suffering in silence with confidential help. He joined First Responders Wellness in Newport Beach, California in 2020 and is currently the client manager there. Additionally, he speaks and he's a peer support for a lot of first responders. I want to welcome Mike Cook. Mike, what an amazing, amazing background. I mean, I know you and I met briefly, but uh, welcome. Welcome today, and so I'm grateful you're here. Thank you, Juliet. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. We're going to start a little bit on the trauma side today, obviously. You know, first responders choose a life, placing themselves in the middle of traumatic events that comes along with the job, right? I mean, I can't imagine some of the things you've experienced or other first responders, but do you think or did you have any clue up to the emotional toll that was going to come along with the job? So talking about the emotional the emotional toll, what happened when I was getting into being a police officer, I didn't think mm-hmm. about it too much. I knew there was going to be a lot of it. And at that point in my early 20s, a lot of, like a lot of us, we feel like we can you know, get through pretty much anything. So I figured I could deal with anything I came across. I was pretty resilient at that time and very charged up and had a very big passion to be a police officer. So I didn't really think about the after effects of any kind of trauma. And do you find that with first responders in general? The ones I've, I've worked with first responders for years now, I specifically just work with first responders here in Newport at First Responder Wellness. And, and yeah, a lot of us go into it because if you look at the first responder realm to get hired as a firefighter, a police officer, 
um, dispatcher, you're you're pretty much at the top of the top. There's hundreds of people mm-hmm. that apply for the job, and you're one out of three or four that actually get it out of a hundred. So yeah, you you get through the go through the testing, you go through the psychological testing and the training, and and just to get your foot in the door, you have to pass the physical agility test. There's a lot of testing involved in it, so they just take the ones that are able to, in their best opinion, do that job. And so I felt right. I felt strong enough, like like all all of us do when we first become in the first responder. Is there any emotional testing? Emotional testing as in what? Yeah, like as in psychological testing that they can handle the job psychologically? Yeah, for what they do, the training that do they do to be a police officer, they you do have to go through a, a psych eval and you have to do the I did the MMPI, I believe. Uh, I was hired first as a as a reserve police officer, so uh, the MMPI, I believe it's 1100 questions and then I did it again when I was hired mm. uh, full-time. And so they do psychological testing for sure. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to talk about the courtroom in a, in a minute because I also want to talk about, you know, if it takes a double toll on someone's life when they have to come back and relive it, but we'll get to there. So how do you, how do you get to a point where you help those deal with issues of like anger, resentment, regret? How do you as a counselor handle those types of issues? Well, anger, resentment, and regret, that's pretty much the human problem that we have in whatever field that we're working in. And, mm-hmm. and uh, w- with the job of being a police officer, I mean, you might get that. You might get angry at the system. You might get angry at the courts. You might get angry at how things were handled. And, and the resentment part of it, for me personally, uh, it might have been resentful um, maybe towards the way people were treated. Um, mm-hmm. in the field or on the outside, you sort of see a black and white when you get out there. It's, mm-hmm. It is a business, but you do see things in a black and white realm where, you know, we're working 24-7, you know, three o'clock in the morning, it, there's only usually cops out there or crooks. At least that's what you're thinking at the time. <laughs> and so everybody mm-hmm. else that are working in their nine to five jobs are usually at home sleeping or getting ready to go to their jobs in the morning. So, for me, handling it with with uh, people, I'm not a I'm not a therapist. I'm a clinician, so um, we do deal a lot with um, trauma. So we all mm-hmm. face a lot of trauma, and it's it's there day in day out. And my trauma right. might be different from another person's trauma. However, I don't discount their trauma as anything less or anything more. It's what they're experiencing. So yeah, it's working. What I look at it this way. Anybody dealing with any kind of issues in life, they can get by if they work a positive program of recovery. And I say that mm-hmm. so many times, and that's true because you have to start working on ourselves. A lot of first responders don't get help because you get to a point where I'm helping everybody else. I'm the strong person. I'm the one people are looking up to now. I know my job. I know how to answer radio calls. I know how to... Uh, give CPR mm-hmm. instructions over the phone as a dispatcher. I know how to get to a scene and you know set the perimeter and make sure everybody is safe so the police officers can come in if I was a firefighter. And uh, we sort of lose it along the way. So you know we we get to that point where we are f- afraid, at least I was afraid to even say that I needed help because how can a right. first responder say they need help when they're out there helping? Uh, right. It's sort of a dichotomy in that field, but, a lot of us don't get help and we do suffer in silence and we don't think that there's any help available. And that is so untrue, especially nowadays. 
Right, which is so glad to hear. But I want to back up for a second a point that you made on the thumbprint. It, it's so different for everybody. And, you know, this this last week I um, I went to volunteer in Maui and I, I met a lot of people that went through the Lahaina fires. And the conversation, seemed, the common conversation you seem to be that you can go through trauma, but it's not my trauma. You can have trauma in your life, but you didn't see the fire that I saw. You didn't see the people die that I saw. And, and it really made me think also, it's like how we need to really respect the individuality of trauma. Like, you know, what you said, a police officer versus fireman, but even in those individual situations. So when, when going through a scenario like that, how is it it's sitting and listening to have compassion? Or is it just, how does that, how do you handle that? Because it's so individualized. So someone going through trauma, I don't necessarily work specifically with people with trauma in a therapeutic view mm-hmm. because I'm not a, I'm not a, a therapist. So we have trauma mm-hmm. therapists that I work with that specifically deal with diving into trauma. And there's lots of different mm-hmm. clinical modalities that they use to help them get through trauma. I know personally, because I was a police officer for 19 years, so I know what trauma looks like. And I know what it mm-hmm. looks like not getting help because the stigma in many first responder fields, most of them, it's pretty thick and it depends where you're going. And uh, it's hard to say that you need help because you'd look down as, as less than, at least you might think that. So a lot of us don't say anything. So the trauma we face, and I have, what I've noticed in working with first responders is a lot of us have damage that have ha- has happened years before we became a first responder. And it goes to childhood. Like the human mm-hmm. race as a whole, a good percentage of us, we've had right. childhood traumas we've held onto and we won't let go right. of them out of a lot of different reasons. A lot of them, it's fear. It's fear of being vulnerable and opening up to another human being and, and let, letting them know mm-hmm. what's really going on because we want to be stoic. We want to be able to handle the situation. We want to get this job so we can be there for someone that wasn't there for us possibly. And when we right. do have the breaking point, when the when the wheels do fall off the train and, and we crash, um, a lot of us, that's what it takes to get into recovery. So that if they're sitting across from me or calling me up, which a lot of people do, and uh, and I give my number out everywhere. So anybody at any mm-hmm. time can give me a call and or a text and say, hey, I need, I need to, some guidance. I'll give them whatever guidance I can to get them help. And, and I know a lot of right. great organizations all over the place, but it all looks different. Like you said, the thumbprint on it, no thumbprint is, is the same. Everybody experiences mm-hmm. trauma different. And what mm-hmm. I look at is what tools are they using to deal with that trauma? Mm-hmm. You know, if they found mm-hmm. themselves talking to me, usually it's gotten too so bad that they need to ask for help maybe once in the, the first time in their lifetime. And what are they using? Mm-hmm. Are they using alcohol to, to deal with their trauma? Are they using sex? Are they using anger? Are they using gambling? Are they using drugs? There's all these easy coping skills that we use and they're not healthy. Mm -hmm. So I help them by giving them the option to use healthy coping skills. And if they're willing to actually listen and open-mindedness of about using these skills, then they have a really good chance of succeeding and having a better life for themselves and their families. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that in the transformation side, how you kind of work through that process. But I, nice. I want to hit on, a, on another thing, yeah, that you just you just talked about, too, is the sign of weakness to show fear or sadness. You know, as I think you, I, I heard a quote was like, unfit for duty. 
you know, I feel the courtroom kind of has that same stigma. If you're sensitive or show emotion or weak, I've seen judges annihilate, especially young lawyers that may get upset about something. Or why do you think they're that we're so hard on people in the either law arena, the courtroom, or whatever that emotion is such a bad thing? Like, why why would you be so unfit for duty because of emotion? Because of the commercial, never let them see you sweat. Remember that? They'll never let them see you sweat. <laughs> yep. So I don't know where that's from, but it just popped okay. in my head when you said that. We don't want to be that be vulnerable because we, let me use my I statements. I'm afraid someone else is going to take the position over me. So if I'm being vulnerable, they're going to know secrets that I really don't want the whole world to know. And they have that trust right. in another person to tell them those things. I want I have to be safe because I don't want to yeah. throw them back on my face. And I want to be able to yeah, go to court and yes, make sure I know my job, but you know, Judges are the best BS detectors, right? They can detect right. weakness for sure. And yeah, the jurors. The, and, and jurors, 100%. If you're jurors. not legit, yep. if you're not truthful, they will read you and like a know. book because they're a lot nervous than yep. you are. And, uh, yep. and you're up there on stand, and it depends how many times you've gone before. But also, you know, being a victim or being, you know, a, a witness to a crime that has happened to you has got to be. Uh, really tough because you're in a new environment. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, you're, you're saying these things, but as long as you're on track and I know you've done this kind of work for years, uh, working with, with victims of crimes, but the, what you need is need is to have to be um, truthful. I think that's the biggest thing and the securing truth, yes. yourself. So if my program is yeah. lacking and let's say I'm not doing what I tell other people they should be doing, it comes out. It really does come out. Right. So, you know, you're not as genuine as you really want other people to think that you are. Well, for quoting, the truth will set you free, right? I mean, that's one of the things I talk about in the meditations that I'm, that I'm starting to put out is like, you get to speak your truth, yeah. have the confidence and the love for yourself in your truth and not to be shamed by your truth, even though it might not be comfortable for everybody else, which is not always the easiest. But, you know, I also saw a term of yours that says pain is fear living the body. What did you mean by that? Pain is fear leaving the body. Yes, yeah. yes, that's a common term that we use. The military used it. I learned it in the academy, the police academies that I went through. And and pain is is when you actually endure and you sit through or you walk through the fire. If you walk through that pain, um, you get to overcome that fear. And all mm -hmm. that sweat, all that pain that you were having, it leaves as long as you push through it and sit through mm -hmm. it. Sometimes for short periods of time, sometimes it takes a little bit longer to get through those things. But all you have to do is step over that line of fear. And it could be, mm -hmm. you know, going to a job promotion as a child, like, well, not a child, but, you know, you, 16, 17, your very first time, that fear that you mm -hmm. have, like, I'm going to sit across, I'm wearing a suit for the first time in my life, or you're dressed up and you want to be the best you can. And if you can relax enough and not try to BS the person that's interviewing you, you, you get through that. And once you step through that line of fear, right. you're on the other side, it's not as bad anymore. And you get to walk through the next fear right. and you keep on going this because life is full of fear. Life is full of struggles. Right. And if we have, avoid them, with drinking and other things, you know, maladaptive, maladaptive coping skills that we learn along the way to get rid of these things and avoidance, um, it becomes life. 
I mean, it becomes hard to yeah. live your life. It really does. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've always believed in a mentor mind was always like, you got to feel it to heal it, you know? The only way to heal it is to feel it, and you got to walk through it. And are we afraid to? A lot of times as humans, we're afraid to actually feel. We feel pain, and we want to get away from it. And society right. tells us, well, you can. Hard. Here's a pill to take. Oh, yeah, I don't. I, here, take this. Go see this doctor. Get right. this medicine. Whatever it is, you know. But if you do the things for yourself, and you start working on your own program of recovery, you learn to work on yourself first. And I, and I know 100%. With my recovery is, and I was taught this by uh, my counselor uh, over 11 years ago, and and she basically said, Mike, start with honesty and trust in your heart, and things Mm -hmm. will start working out. And that concept alone has got me to where I'm at right now talking to you. Is if if I trust myself and I and I and I Mm -hmm. honored myself uh, with honesty, uh, things seem to flow a lot better. Because number one is that I don't care any longer what you think about me and what you say about me. And either, either, either do to me behind my back, as long as you don't physically try to hurt me, because I know right. who I am now. And like you said earlier, right. that's the truth that had set me free. Yeah, it's self-love. I mean, it comes down to self-love, and it's, it's, it's a tough thing to do when you've got all these things bombarding you. But mm-hmm. let, me, let me walk a little bit into the, to the trial section of this. So okay. do, how, do first responders, they testify very often? Well, if you're a police officer, yes, 100%. We do a lot. Mm-hmm. What about firefighters or sure. crime investigation? Firefighters, dispatchers, it all depends. And it all depends on the crime. It all depends on the defendant, uh, whether or not they're looking at life in prison or possibly the death penalty. Of course, they're going to pull mm-hmm. in anybody they can as a witness. And it would be the dispatcher. It would be the, the firefighter, EMT, EMS, uh, police officer, of course, anybody that's involved in that mm-hmm. situation. Right. So, and you've testified, I assume, many times? Many, many times, yes. Many, many times. So, can you remember the first time you testified? Were you nervous or were you just being a police officer and just going in with stoic, you know? You no, know, no, not at all. I, I never thought that I was anything more than just a, a human doing, a, doing a, a job that I knew I can deal with. And I felt like very confident. And I was very confident and competent in being a police officer. But I remember one of my first ones, I can't say if it was my first or not, but it was a, a DUI trial. So the mm-hmm. person that I arrested for uh, driving on an influence of alcohol and I got up on stand and I was super new. I was probably within the first year or so. And I remember getting up on the stand in my uniform, you know, all, you know, ready to go. I, I, I was honest with the case. I did everything I was supposed to do. And the defense counsel was a retired uh, police officer of like maybe Mm. 15 or 20 years. And he went to the other side being a defense lawyer. And he was very, Mm -hmm. very, very good. He was even overpowering to look at because he was this staunch six foot five individual. He felt, (laughs) looked very confident. And there was rumors about him. Like if you're facing him, he's going to grill you. And he really did. He tried to pick apart everything uh, on my report, tried to get me stuck. And, you know, and you know how they do that. They're, that's what they're trained mm-hmm. to do. They're, they're really good at what yep. they do. That's their job. Yep. And I was their very, and I, and I got through it. I sat through the fire. I didn't like it. I was sweating, but I was honest about it. And I remember um, that happened maybe twice uh, with two or three different lawyers. But after that, 
I didn't get called to testify uh, very much anymore mm-hmm. as a witness or as the officer that was arresting officer because my reports by that time, by year two, they were online. I didn't, I didn't have any mistakes yeah. in them. I didn't have any misspellings. I, everything was in chronological uh, order. So they knew a report coming from Mike Cook or my nickname uh, when I was a police officer was Cookie. They knew that I didn't, I didn't go to trial because I knew, they knew that my reports was going to be on, on the spot. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, I remember, I remember it. And it was that it did feel like it was, I was very, very traumatized it, in that moment. Like felt like I was. Yeah. I was being the suspect and I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing, but I got through it. Right. I got right. through it. That wasn't that big a deal. Like you said, you know, there's calm in the truth. There's peace in the truth. There's when you are telling your truth. And even if somebody's, I've been deposed before, and I've talked about this multiple times on this podcast. It was the most, un, one of the most uncomfortable days of my life, mm. but it was the truth. There was nothing else I could do. You just have to tell the truth. And so let's say a first responder, you know, goes through and is starting to hit on this edge of like really needing help, right? But going into to trial is, starts triggering things for them. It, have you ever seen that happen where, I mean, I've, I've seen it just with witnesses in a sense, but have you also seen it through first responders where watching, you know, or seeing a murder? So, I mean, obviously seeing things most of us can never even imagine mm-hmm. or want to imagine. Yeah. But to testify through it and have to relive it again. Have you ever seen that bother first responders? Not personally. I, I haven't worked I've worked with a lot of a lot of first responders that have been through trials. And the thing is, so we get to the scene and we, we're trained. We're trained to get to the scene if it's a dead body, if it's a suicide, if it's a, a shooting, whatever it is, we deal with it. Um, we deal with body parts. We deal with death and destruction. We deal with horrific scenes where the first or second or third or fourth or fifth time, yeah, it affects you in that moment. When you look at, Mm -hmm. I don't know how many people that are outside the realm of being a police officer or firefighter or a first responder has, gets the chance to ever see a, a a dead stranger in front of them at any given moment. Uh, We see it all the time. And and the the inhumanity that people give onto another another and their children and their family and their loved ones uh, mm-hmm. or supposedly loved ones uh, it is and but then you have to relive it and what I, what I think is a little bit of a cushion to it at least me personally when I went to a scene and I was the officer that was going to rep- do the report you're assigned you know you're going to be the point person so you're going to take the reports mm-hmm. and you have the evidence people come in and all that. And when you're writing it, you re- you relive it once you write it, and then you research it, and then you talk to the victims, and you talk to the witnesses, and you get it all together. By the time it gets to trial, it's sort of ingrained, and a little it takes a little bit of the power away from it. And mm-hmm. however, there are there are different scenes that might get stuck in your mind at the time when you experience mm-hmm. it, and that could carry on with you, and and. I'm sure you've heard it and a lot of your audience have probably heard it too, but you know, you shove it down, you stuff it into the box, you put it in the backpack, you put it in wherever yep. you're in the container, you try to put it in a, into a container and, uh, yep. and then you put the lid on it pretty soon. You put so much stuff in that container and don't deal with it because you're this stoic right. police officer, you're a stoic firefighter, you're first responder, you're helping everybody. And pretty soon it starts overfilling and the lid comes off. And then what do you do? A lot of us, it wrecks our right. lives. Uh, a lot of it leads to uh, addictions. 
uh, or dependency mm -hmm. issues or other activities. Sometimes, in a lot of cases, it leads to death at, by suicide. And, and mm. because we can't, we, we're afraid to actually talk about what's really going on and being vulnerable because number one, a lot of us are trained that way. Uh, I was trained by mm -hmm. um, my, uh, my uh, um, training officers. Uh, you know, we didn't, sh I didn't show emotion. It was like, okay, right. if you, you're going to see some things, go over there, get yourself fixed up, go to the locker room, do what you need to do, come back and we're going to go out and handle the next call. And so a lot Sorry of times again, yeah. when you're in the field and you're working, you don't get a chance really to process it as a police officer because you go to one, one scene and then, okay, everything's, you know, we call code four, everything's good. You're secure. They'll call you off. Unless it's your case, they'll call you off to another call. I might go from a, right. a murder investigation where they don't really need me anymore. I'm clear to go handle Carl's and I'm going to a barking dog call two miles away, you know, <laughs> and, right. and the, right. And then he's hard balancing the significance. Like I just saw a dead person that was murdered. And right. now I'm telling the neighbor, they bring their dog in. It's just, you don't have really time to process right. it. And you're usually driving alone in a police car. Whereas a firefighter, right. you're usually driving with others and you get, go back to their, your, uh, your unit and you get to sort of process things. Unit, right. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, it just doesn't feel like the human brain is wired for that, right? So it's like, it's it's just not, so there is, the only thing to do is to shove it down, you know, to move on, shove it back, move on, shove it back. I, I think we, we learned that as kids, right? Mm -hmm. And we're talking about trauma as kids and something that comes up. But we'll talk a little bit about your story. Hope you don't mind me delving into this. But Oh, not, a, not at all. I knew that you got in some trouble, pretty much lost it all, had quite a few felonies against you. How did you handle being a police officer and appearing in court as? Oh, afterwards? Afterwards, After all yes. That? As a police officer in court and these charges are against you. Wow. How do you feel about that? Man, I tell you what, that was so surreal. If there was a word I could describe it as, and at the time I did, it was surrealism. And I don't really think that's a word, but I felt so... Whereas before I was looking inside the fishbowl and now I was inside the fishbowl, a lone fish in a fishbowl and everything was on me. That um, was, mm -hmm. it was heartbreaking. It was tragic. I was scared, but I, but on the other hand too, I was grateful that my secret was out and the pain for that holding in that for so long uh, it was finally gone. I was finally getting help. And, but walking through the courtroom, when I pulled up the same courtrooms, uh, the same courthouse that I went to hundreds of times, right. hundreds of times, right. not only to bring, you know, suspects into the Sally port to get booked into the, their, their, their jail. Uh, but I was also now going into the front gates, going into the metal detectors where before all I had to do was flash my badge when I was working undercover and, you know, I had my gun on me and everything else and they knew who I was to now taking off my belt, taking off my shoes, getting, you know, frisks on the way in and, and then seeing some of the deputies that I remember and they're giving me like a nod and, and the, and the shame was so heavy and I already mm -hmm. knew I was guilty. The guilt I, I already. So when I did lose my career, um, and I did have criminal charges. I had 47 felony charges for going into evidence and taking drugs uh, so I can support my habit. 
bad thing to do, of course. Uh, I understand addiction a lot better. And being an undercover mm-hmm. narcotics detective, being addicted to opiates was uh, probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life and the most humiliating mm. thing I've ever experienced. And that hole that I was in was so deep and dark that I never thought I would get out of it. And it 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 took my wheels to fall off my train and come to a crashing halt into a brick wall. And uh, and mm-hmm. I got off it and I just said, okay, you know, I threw basically threw my mer- the self mercy at the court and and but the feeling of walking in there, it was just. Um, I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe where I was. Uh, and and it was quiet. Yeah. And I remember getting there early because my motto has always been, and it was ingrained in me as a police officer too. If you're, you know, if you're on time, you're late. So I would always get right. there early. I don't like being right. late. I do. I am late sometimes. Especially and, court. Yeah. But I, I'm late sometimes. But man, to court, I will have two or three alarms. And the same thing happened too. When I had to go in there and yeah. go to the prelim and 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 sit in the hallways while the news reporters are out there meeting and talking about my case, not even knowing who the mm-hmm. defendant was, was, was me. And I'm thinking, you? am I this guy? I'm the guy now. And walking in there and having, you know, the news right there in your face. And it was just me and my lawyer basically. And may, I think another, some reporter. And I'm telling you, it was, uh, I, I wish that on no one. I, and that's true when I did get through that. And I knew I would get through that. I was going through, uh, at the time I was married and my wife basically said, okay, well, I want a divorce. Everyone, okay. So going through divorce in the first three months, uh, 47 felony counts. Uh, I knew that going mm-hmm. in, uh, when I, when I got halfway through my rehab that I went through it was a 28 day rehab, exactly 28 days. Mind you that 28 days does not do much for a lot of people. I was able to stay sober right. and continue sober up until this moment. So not to mean that I'm going to drink right now, but like up to this wow. point. And, uh, yes. and, but I knew that I could get through all those things wow. that addiction led me to. I just didn't know how to stay sober. So I, I was determined, whatever the judge, uh, whatever was going to happen to me, I was going to accept. And if I had to go to prison, I was going to accept it. And, and I was going to get through it no matter what. And wow. the big thing about the wow. no matter what is this, is that early on in the academy, uh, a lot of times you'll see a picture of a pelican with a frog in its mouth and it's trying to swallow the frog and the pelican's trying so hard to swallow this frog, but the frog's head and body is in the pelican, but his feet are out and his hands are out and, and the hands are grasping the pelican's neck, trying to strangle it. Oh. And it has a model and it was, it was made back in the sixties. I can't tell, I don't know who actually first wrote, uh, drew that picture. Uh, but it, it says no matter what, no matter what, even wow. when you go out in the field, you're going home safe that night. You're going to win the battle. You're going to win the fight. Not all of us do, but the mindset is no matter what happens, I'm going home. No matter what happens in my wow. life, I'm going to get through this mess. Yeah, it was scary, but I was stepping through that line of fear and, and I did. And I knew I yeah. would, and I knew I would stay sober and I would help other first responders and I don't want any, I would never want anybody else to experience what I did just because I got through it. Yeah, yeah I got through it, but I want to be able to be there for someone before they get to the point that I got to. What a, what a incredible gift and a unique way to have learned that no matter what concept yeah. to get through what you've gone through because of how deep 
your trauma obviously was to go so far down to be able to come to where you are today. I, I, I just, I'm just so <laughs> impressed. I, I, impressed doesn't even matter. It's, it's such a beautiful story. Thank you. I, I look at it this way with the no matter what too. It's just, if you don't hold reservations, I could say, I'm not going to drink the rest of my life. However, you know what? If, you know, I get into a car wreck and my daughter dies, then I'm definitely going to drink over that. Why? That's a reservation. Mm -hmm. No matter what means, no matter Mm -hmm. what happens in life, what you, and I went through everything when I first learned this back in 2012, and I don't remember where I learned it from, but I'm not the one that discovered it. But being part of the no matter what clubs, it means go through all the things that could happen to bring you back to being a a problem gambler, uh, being, uh, drinking alcohol again, or to escaping, doing Mm -hmm. drugs. What would happen that would bring you back to it? Well, if my wife leaves me, I'm going to, I'll probably drink over it. And I tell them this, I guarantee you, if you still have that thought, you will drink long before that happens. Even if she doesn't leave you because you're over, you're already thinking the future too far. You don't even know it's going to happen or not. Mm -hmm. But if you put that in your Mm -hmm. mind that if this happens, I will drink, then you will probably drink a lot sooner than that. And that thing probably will never happen. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I, I I love that. No matter what, I'm going to, I'm going to remember that for sure. So how do you, how do you help transform like shame and stigma when somebody has to go back on the job? Like do it, do a lot of first responders come through the program and go back on the job? Oh, of course. Yeah. A lot do. Then how do, how do they handle the stigma that they went through the program or keep the strength going back on the job? It should be. It, it, they look at it as an honor that they're able to go through a program with just first responders, maybe have a, mm. a break for the first time in their life, a vacation for themselves, like most of us never do. And I know you're into you know mindfulness activities and breath works, of course. And so a lot of us don't mm-hmm. get to experience those kind of things. But we might be able to go and take a vacation to Hawaii or take a vacation with the family at Christmas mm-hmm. time. But when is the last time, if there was ever a time, that you took a vacation for yourself? That you just work on yourself, be selfish, right. be intelligently selfish with, with what you're doing for right. yourself and take care of yourself. So I look at more mm-hmm. as an honor when I get to work with, when the first responder walks through our doors, the courage it takes to first ask for help. Unless, of course, a lot of them come in, um, you know, maybe they have had a DUI, something in the departments and the department goes, okay, bing, 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 you're it now. You have to get help. There's no like if, ands, mm-hmm. you know, about it. You have to get help. But they have the courage to walk through the door. And when I tell them that even though, you know, they don't know what they're going to experience here, they're going to be in a good, safe environment. And whether they like it or not, they're part of our family. So I could be the brother that they hate or the brother they love, but it's too bad. They're part of the family now. And it's a comfort knowing that, you know, we get each other. Uh, and not saying that clinicians, we have competent clinicians working here, of course, and I know a lot of them throughout the country and a lot of them never been a first responder, but as long as you have someone that mm-hmm. gets you, that's not going to be like mm-hmm. shocked and traumatized themselves. That's what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And to be a qualified trauma therapist that works specifically with first responders. Yeah, there, there's more coming out there, but there, there's. There's, it's a tough field. It really is a tough field. And that kind of isn't that kind of what we all want in life. We want somebody who gets us, yes. wife, partner, yeah. you know, kids. Uh, we we want to be gotten. We want to be understood. And so I, I do have to ask you the question that I ask most of my guests: Is healing a choice? To heal, to heal from anything is healing. Yeah, to heal is healing a choice. One hundred percent. 
100%. Mm. I feel 100% that if you, everybody wants to heal. Everybody wants to feel good. Everybody wants to get to the other side and get through what they're going through. A lot of us are unwilling to do the work and the work Mm -hmm. is hard and the work isn't Mm -hmm. physical necessarily. It might be, but it means Mm -hmm. diving deep, getting that stuff out, Mm -hmm. putting it on the table and working a little piece at a time and putting the stuff back Mm -hmm. and then working on the next time, you know, and closing it up. So it's, it's hard. We do hard things. We get through hard things Mm -hmm. in our lives and actually our brain is neuroplastic. So that's where the change happens in our brain. When we start mm. progressing and noticing, wow, I talked about this to s- this clinician. I've never told my wife this stuff. That's where the right. healing starts. You're going, right. Your brain starts changing. Like, I could do this. And yeah, I think, right. I think it is a, a choice. Um, and, and it is. And, and you, do, you do start that healing process. And you'll notice along the way, as long as you keep up with it and you don't give up no matter what, right? You keep on going. Right. You don't get to an end. So when I talk about starting a personal recovery program, it's not a nine-week program where you freaking lose 15 pounds, you gain 10 pounds of muscle, and you look great, and you can go out and conquer the world mm-hmm. and not do anything ever mm-hmm. again. It's nothing like that. Even if you are a bodybuilder, even if you are uh, a gymnast or a swimmer or a tennis player, whatever you do in life, it's, you have to continue doing it. You know, once you stop right. it, it's going to be harder to pick it back up again. And you won't ever be as good totally. unless you keep on practicing. So it's a practice. It's like right. therapy. And um, right. it's, it's where they call it a practice. Your practice. A, a, right. good, a good lawyer, that they have a practice, right? This is my practice. Because right. basically that's where it comes from. You practice and you practice right. and you practice. And as long as you're practicing, you're progressing. But once we stop and say, I'm good, um, then things could start falling off because you're not keeping up with the times. You're not keeping up with your own program and you're still trying to help other people. And that's where the wheels start getting loose and the air starts getting on those tires. So stop it before you, those air gets out of the tires and you blow it, you blow one and you you lose it. Yeah. No, I love the word practice. One of my favorite tidbits that I learned many years ago was that Michael Jordan had a basketball in his hand every day for like, I don't know, 20 years. So it was like, yeah, you have to do it every day. It's a, it is a practice of medical practice. It's meditation is a practice. It's, yeah. you know, you, you need to continue it. So yeah. listen, can you tell my listeners a little bit about your podcast and then uh, we'll wrap some things up here? Oh, my podcast? Yeah. In 2017, I was interviewed for a podcast and I decided to start my own podcast uh, with the Mental Health News Radio Network. And, and it, it didn't really occur to me until... Um, I started researching it. I'm like, you know what? I could do it. What do I need to do to make my own podcast? And I decided the best way to get the word out to first responders and just to show that it's okay to be vulnerable, it's okay to speak your truth, is to mm-hmm. reach as many people as you can. And I don't tell my story to be like to get credit, like, oh, Mike, such a great guy that he got through it and he's working this great program. Yeah, I did. You can too. And I know the way out. All you have to do is, is start going in that direction. Like one degree of change is all you need and pretty soon. So uh, I was able to, I met Kristen Walker uh, in person uh, who, who started uh, the Mental Health News Radio Network, a wonderful person and, wonderful. Uh, and a, a pot, another podcaster who interviewed me back in 2017. I, they happened to be in my city doing some kind of convention and I met with them. 
had lunch with them and I'm like, you know what, I could probably, do, I'd like to do this. How, what is it going to take me? And so she gave me all the information to start one. And I decided the best way for me to do it is to bring people on the show to, um, to promote them that deal with mental health issues and that I could sort mm-hmm. of vet them and sort of give them the promotion that they need to reach other people. So when I went through my stuff in 2012, I made it a personal choice and for my direction is to uh, vet out the people all around the country that I can find that helps first responders. Because when I first got in trouble, when I first uh, got arrested, I, the only time, but the first time, and, and I went through my stuff, they didn't know what to send me. I went up to Sonoma County right. to Mountain Vista Farms, which was really a great rehab, but uh, it wasn't like first responder wellness. There wasn't a, there was a couple other that were first responders or former first responders. It was just mostly just general populations, the regular rehab. And, but I worked it myself. I'm like, I'm just going to do this for myself. No matter what's going on around me, I'm going to stay sober. I'm going to figure out what this all means. And I'm going to be able to get myself better so I can help other people in the, in the future and to tell them what I did to get through it. So, uh, right. That's that's basically where I, I came from. So and the name of the podcast is so my so my name of the podcast is it's called Positive Connections Radio. So my intent was to have positive connections, and that's why awesome. I named it Positive Connections Radio. And I started yep. uh, vetting people all over the country, getting them on the show, uh, talking about recovery, talking about working with first responders, and then I uh, I met a guy named Jim McClintock, a really good friend of mine. And, uh, we, he was on a show a few times. He was a police officer and became a clinician. And then last Mm -hmm. year in December, we decided, uh, to, I wanted to bring him on. I wanted a partner in this podcast. So, uh, we did a, we did a show called HALT. Uh, you ever heard of the acronym HALT, H-A-L-T? It stands for hungry, angry, lonely, Mm -hmm. tired. So at any time in your life, when you feel like you're out of sorts and things aren't going right during the middle of the day. If you can just halt and think of the acronym, am I hungry? Am I lonely? Am I angry? It's halt. And we did a, we were going to do like a little segments about different things about recovery and first responders. And I I named it halt and call for backup. So you halt and call for backup, call your backup, call your partners up, call your friends up, call those people in your life that are going to call you on your BS, right? That you want to be in your life because Anybody can get people in your lives that are going to agree with you every second. I want people in my life that are going to call me on my BS and they're going to come in and say, Mike, you know what? You got to take a step back here. And so we called it halt. So we've done uh, a lot of different podcasts since then. So it's Positive Connections Radio. It's through the Mental Health News Radio Network. And I'm very grateful. We've reached people throughout Mm -hmm. the country. Amazing. uh, Yes. All over the place. As yours does too. So. Yeah, it's it's fun to do. It's an amazing podcast. We have a lot of parallels on bringing awareness to subjects that most people don't think about, right? I mean, I think that's the whole thing with the witnesses and yours with first responders. And yeah. So where do people find you, Mike? People can find me. They can call me, 760-224-6631. That is my cell phone. And it'd be helpful if you text me first. I don't know it's a scam call because I, I usually don't answer those. <laughs> but, uh, but you can give me a call on that one. You can reach me at positiveconnectionsradio at gmail.com. You can also reach me on the Facebook page, Positive Connections Radio. You can follow that page, or you can even get onto the group that I have now with Jim. It's Halt and Call for Backup group on Facebook. 
And I think we, it's a private mm-hmm. group, but uh, just answer a few questions and get mm-hmm. on the group. It's really good stuff. But yeah, you can get a hold of me also awesome. through uh, First Responder Wellness in Newport Beach. It's firstresponderwellness.com. And it's a great group. And if you want to look it up, if you're yeah. a first responder and you need help or you, you think someone else might need help, uh, give us a call. We'll walk you through it. And it's a really great place. It's a really great healing environment. And I'm very honored that I get to, to do this now, to be a counselor, to be yeah. a, you know, work with Amazing. the client care department here. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I came to to visit you in the spaces. Yes, you did. can feel the great energy, great energy, and you are a bright light in a pretty intense world, you know? And I, so I uh, thank you for that. Your story is really incredible and um, your courage and your power and your truth. Thank you. So I really want to thank you for joining me here today. It's really been just a pleasure to talk to you. I could talk to you forever. I, I know. I, talked to you the other day when I saw you for a good hour and a half. I know. So I thanks very much for being here. Thank you for having me. I feel very honored. I'm so glad. And it was great meeting you in person too. A lot of times we don't get to meet the people uh, that we have on our podcast, but I love you're a wonderful person and you're doing great work well, yourself. So keep on going. Thank you. Thank you. Well, keep, please stay in touch. So, all right, everybody, we'll listen no matter what. That's going to be our theme today. Probably ending up being the title of this podcast something to think about. You know, thanks for joining me and don't forget, you know, go out and spread some love. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find your books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts.